Welcome back to episode 3 of the Heart Podcast, everyone. My name is Omar Omadia, and I'm happy to be back with all of you today. This semester, we've had two fabulous faculty affiliates with the Office for Diversity and Inclusion join us in supporting the podcast. Given their incredible contributions to the field of academia and beyond, we thought of inviting them to be guest speakers on our episode to speak more about their journey and passion. Helping me introduce our guest is my friend and colleague, Kelly Schlaubach, a first-year doctoral student at the University of Connecticut and a graduate assistant at ODI. Thank you so much for joining me. Take it away, Kelly. Thank you, Omar. My name is Kelly Schlaubach, and I have been working behind the scenes on the podcast and am a current doctoral student in the Learning, Leadership, and Education Policy program at UConn. Our first guest today is Dr. Stephanie Santos, who is an assistant professor in residence and associate director of the Vergnano Institute for Inclusion in the School of Engineering at the University of Connecticut. Her previous work focused on cartilage biomechanics, and she is shifting lenses to engineering leadership, equity, and microaggressions. As a faculty affiliate with ODI, Stephanie's work also focuses on faculty and staff support and development, in addition to community outreach, development, and advocacy. Our second guest is Dr. David Embrick, who holds a joint position as Associate Professor in the Sociology Department and African Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. His research has centered largely on the impact of contemporary forms of racism on people of color. As a faculty affiliate with ODI this academic year, David focuses on faculty and staff support and development and research and policy. Thank you both so much for joining us and for taking the time to share more about your work. Let's get started. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Wonderful. All right. Well, we're live. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. David Embrick and Dr. Stephanie Santos for joining us on this awesome episode. Crazy to think how quickly this year is going by. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really thankful to have you both. You're, you're both faculty affiliates with the Offers for Diversity and Inclusion this semester. And I'm really excited just to hear more about each of your perspectives on this topic, each of your, uh, your background and your work. And I guess just jumping right in, I guess I'd like to get um, your perspective on what y'all feel a racist institution or organization looks like. D David, perhaps you could kick us off? No, 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 no. Let my, uh, my colleague, Stephanie, take the first shot. Thanks, David. <laughs> this is an interesting question because I think a lot about what racism means and then what a racist institution means. And when you think about racism, we have that kind of textbook definition of its power and its systems and its structures. So then when you jump into like, all right, well, what does that mean for a racist institution? its power, its systems, and its structures. So it's not always what's happening at the institution. So for example, you have things happening on campus where you see you know, the N-word written on whiteboards in student dorms, where you see swastikas written on walls, like things are happening. And the underlying cause of that is racism and bias and hate, but does that make us a racist institution? Maybe, maybe not, but is it the, it's how we respond that makes us particularly um, that could make us racist or could make us discriminatory in different ways. So that power, that system, that structure. Um, I think there's a lot of things going on. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things going on, not just here, but everywhere. And so people are really feeling it. And so when we look back and say, are we a racist institution? Yeah, 
but so are a lot of different places. And so how do we feel? How do we respond? How can we survive? Um, that's a lot of the things that I think about. What about you, David? Um, I mean, I agree with you. It's it's um, I think one of the issues, um, you know, I'm a sociologist, right? And so one of the issues that I find interesting is the way that we conflate prejudice and racism, right? Um, in how we think about um, just about everything, right? Uh, we, we individualize it. We think about the individual stance. And so this is true when you are in an institution that, um, you know, decides to have programming that they think is going to be valuable. And it, and it may be valuable on its own, uh, you know, in some in some respects. But it really, when you look at the institution as a whole and start to realize um, structurally what what thinking about it thinking about certain things at an individual level does is it allows for institutions to sort of deflect responsibility, right? So I, I think of um, the sort of the training that goes on and it doesn't, I mean, I'm not necessarily talking about the like ODI at UConn, but I'm talking about in general, how diversity training works and, and the fact that you have some universities that love to, you know, um, have mandatory training, sort of anti-bias training, but, but, or, or the, you know, the sort of subtle uh, bias training, right? Um, but that's at the individual level, right? I mean, that means that, you know, you take the, the implicit bias test um, and, you know, you could say X, Y, and Z comes from that implicit bias test. But what it really allows the university to do is, is, is if, you know, it, it says that individuals are part of the problem, right? And so, um, you know, um, if you do something at the university, um, that falls under kind of like this individual kind of rhetoric, right? This kind of like you're racist, then the problem is easily solved because, uh, and we have a process for that. We can get rid of that individual, right? And that racism goes away. But that's really not how sort of sociologists think about racism. And I'm I'm, I'm really sort of struck by, you know, I mean, Stephanie's got it right, right? I mean, we, we need to start thinking about the larger structural issues of, of racism. We, UConn is a historically white university. Most of the universities, public universities, uh, you know, they're historically white colleges and universities, right? Um, and they and they and they and they are uh, HWCUs today, right? Um, you know, I'm, I I say this I say this not to sort of not to give um, you know excuses for historically black college university. You talk to colleagues that work there, and they'll tell you it's a plantation. It's a white plantation. It's built on sort of white logics. Um, even though, you know, a lot of students would say that it's a much safer space, uh, space than being in sort of the, the kind of white spaces of, 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 say, UConn or other universities. But, I mean, there, there's some meaning to sort of recognize that, say, UConn is a, is, is a, uh, is, is a uh, historically white university and, and, and an emphasis on historical means that we have to sort of confront the realities that it's not just that um, racism uh, is deeply rooted within Yukon, but there's a historical legacy. It's deeply rooted, deeply rooted, right? Um, and those changes that we can talk about, um, you know, real changes are gonna have to be conversations about, you know, either we're gonna talk about dismantling the institution, right? Which is one way to do it, right? Because it's deeply rooted, or we're gonna have to talk about real structural changes that get at some of these roots, which, which you know, which is a, a you know, a, a combination of a bunch of things that include real curriculum changes, 
right, that allows people to understand and read about the histories of people of color, that they have contributed to the sciences and the social sciences, that they have contributed to the foundation of the universities, that they have donated money to the university, that they have, um, you know, they have been instrumental in, in a lot of ways that we have minimized, marginalized, and erased. Right. That's but that's one of dozens and dozens of things that we need to do collectively in order to sort of move the university forward. Right. Um, and so that's what happens when you start to think about institutional racism, as opposed to sort of these bandage approaches that a lot of universities have sort of have done. Right. You know, let's create, a, you know, let's create an ombudsperson office. That's great. Right. Because we need to have a place where people can air grievances so they can air grievances so we can get at individuals. Well, no, right? Individuals come and go, right? Students come and go, faculty come and go. The institution pretty much stays the same. And, 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 and most institutions are highly vested in the status quo. That status quo is based on sort of white supremacist normativity, right? So, I mean, what is a racist institution is most historically white colleges and universities. I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to what Stephanie said. It's like, you know, it, you know, it, it's okay to acknowledge that. And it's okay to acknowledge the fact that, um, am I being harsh or critical about the university? Yes, of course. But, but, but this is my home, right? Or my second home. And so if I'm going to, if I'm going to, if I'm going to want to, <laughs> if I want to feel safe in my home, right? If I want to feel belonging in my home, if I want to feel like somebody in my home, right? I need to take care of home first. Right. And so I think this kind of constructive criticism is necessary, right, to get the university to a place where I can say, like, not only do I want to be here, I, I feel great about telling other people they should be here with me as well. That was long winded. <laughs> no, you're you're good, but you're right, because it is home. It is home or second home or whatever number it is. But it is really important. And, and to keep with that analogy, if we didn't do repairs to our home, then you can have a strong structure that comes from the beginning, but there are things that need to be fixed. There are leaks, there are updates that need to be made. So as society progresses, as we move and as we, you know, time is churning. So if we don't call this out or we don't make those changes, then that home is going to collapse. Yeah, I really, really appreciate the the golden nuggets that the both of you dropped and the analogies as well, like kind of acknowledging the the multifaceted layers that students, faculty, staff, we all encounter when engaging in this work. Stephanie, you mentioned, you know, power systems and structures, the historical legacy that you mentioned, David, I think that's huge. I and and something something that really struck me, and I've I've really been grappling with this, especially in relation to anti-racist teaching is that institutions and i think perhaps on a human level as well we, we're just very rea reactionary we we tend to you know respond after the fact and to your point david like often institute band-aid approaches to to dealing with these issues and you know i i wonder like I, I study ed policy at UConn and oftentimes like a couple semesters ago, I took a history of education reforms class and uh, taught by Dr. Jenny Weiner. And she, she put things in such an interesting perspective that like the idea of reform denotes that there was a, a better something better before. And in looking at the, the legacy of UConn and predominantly white institutions, they weren't built for us. They weren't built. For historically marginalized students and so i wonder like can institutions be proactive in this work and given that you know 
both you, David, and Stephanie have worked and studied at different institutions in different states and just have been in different spaces. Have you seen this in action, perhaps, this proactive nature on behalf of organizations or institutions? I'm going to go back to the power point. And it goes back to when you have power at the center and you have folks in positions in power, call them deans, call them department heads or whoever has this power. When you have people wh who are expressing they have needs, they have concerns, they have issues, and they go to the people with power. And we can talk about power systems and structures in a second, but when you go to people who have that power because it's not shared, so who have that power, and they don't use that to help people, then it's not going anywhere. So I say that to say, if students, for example, are saying that they have experienced mistreatment in a classroom, if students are saying that there is an individual faculty member who has said things to them or has practices or policies that are um, in their classroom that are not right, or they might be researchers in a lab and are being extorted or whatever is happening in a situation. If nothing is happening by the people who have power, then there's a system that is broken. Um, and so if you have performative uses of power, then all that is is kind of the fireworks on a, <laughs> at, a at the end of a show. So hooray, we've done something, but it's still coming down on that murky water that hasn't been cleaned that hasn't been treated, but the fireworks make it seem nice. So what can we do to actually see and assure any sort of accountability so that that power is actually used for the people? Um, that's one approach. I know, David, I know I see I see you <laughs> you're, you're thinking, but that that's kind of what comes to my mind is how how is power used when people come to you and expect you to use it? I mean, it, it's 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 hard for me to. I mean, I'm trying to think of concrete examples of what I think you're you're asking, which is, have you have you seen sort of anti racist change, whatever that means? Um, so, um, I think it. I think the one thing I know, right? I mean, and again, I want, and I don't want to keep harping on like you know talking about sort of structure. Structural racism is important, but we're socialized into sort of understanding a uh, like like this is the this is this is the way we should be doing things, right? And so and so you know there's there's a great book by um, Amanda Lewis. I mean you're in policy ed, so Amanda Lewis and John Diamond called "Despite the Best Intentions." Um, and this this is a book that follows on um, I think I think I think it's safe to say it follows uh, on Amanda Lewis's earlier book on the heels of her earlier book, which was a, a long time uh, published a long time ago, part of her dissertation, which was called "Race in the Schoolyard," where where she basically says that um, and I mean she looks at three different schools in California in the first book, um, these different schools, different de de demographics, right? Um, 
you know, one rich neighborhood, mostly white, one one sort of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, heavily Latinx, um, one in a in a neighborhood that sort of prides itself on being like multicultural, right? Um, um, you know, uh, you know, the first one doesn't have any books, you know, um, uh, you know, at all that sort of test the people of color. The last school has, you know, uh, a ton of books, right? They have the resources. And she says there's really no difference in any of the school systems from the, I mean, I'm just being basic here, but in her ethnographic research, in that um, in all of the schools, right, um, you know, it's, it's really, it's really about teachers working in a, a racist institution, right? Um, the, 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 the school that has the resources that thinks they're doing good still does still has a hard time in terms of, um, understanding its role, um, in producing sort of racist outcomes for students. Right. And then the other schools are in denial about it. Right. So, but the, but the outcome is still the same. Right. Um, and I remember, you know, and, and, and she, there's a great, in the, in the beginning of race of the school year, there's a great, uh, you know, like scenario she's talking about, um, she's a assistant to a school teacher and, 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 and she's watching like chaos in this elementary school and the kids are running around and a little, uh, one of the black boys in the school does something, um, you know, uh, that the teacher thinks is wrong and gets penalized. But in the moment that he gets penalized, all of the black students get penalized. Right. And she's watching this unfold where, you know, she tells the student to sit down um, and behave and, and there's students everywhere. Right. And these and she's watching white students go up to her asking to use the restroom and the teacher says yes. And she's watching these other black students go up to the teacher and they get denied. And and then she's and she's talking about that experience, right? In this chaos, in this thing where the where the where the teacher is trying to sort of, uh, you know, um, have control over the class, she's watching in real time, kind of uh, racism happen, right? But she also says that she doesn't believe that there's an intentional part in the teacher, right? But the teacher has been socialized in a racist society, and so this is sort of the image that comes in, into mind, right? It, 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 I mean, again, you can for better or worse, and in, 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 invoke implicit bias here. And and I you know and I and I and I use it a lot to think about sort of like well yeah, you know um, if you are and I've got lots of undergraduate students that are educational majors, and the, and you know and and they come to my class um, and they're gung ho like they're taking these courses right from these awesome professors, and they're basically like I want to be an educator I know I'm going to be broke, but I want to be an educator right I want to I want to teach kids right. Uh, and I want to take these classes and I, and they have this epiphany and, and, you know, and, and I don't want to downplay them, but I ask them like, you know, what do you think is going to happen when you get your job? Like, what's the realities, right? Um, do you think that you're going to make curricular changes as you wish? Probably not. The curriculum is set by the state in a lot of, in a lot of cases, right? By, 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 by institutionally set where teachers don't go in there and, you know, I mean, teachers are like, okay, well, this is tried and true. I'm going to do it. Well, the teachings, <laughs> the curriculum is a racist curriculum, right? Um, and there's a seniority that's set up, right? And there's all these other things. So, so going in thinking that you're going to make a radical change. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, right? We know that social movements are important and they do lead to change. But at the individual level, right? I mean, you're facing an insurmountable kind of task with these institutions that are already set in their ways. And it's the same thing. Like you can move from uh, high schools, elementary schools and high schools right into higher education. And you could see the same kind of patterns that, that have people think that there's a canon that they need to follow, right, within their respective fields. And you can't convince them because they've been socialized, like in their grad programs. And then, you know, to think that it's just, you know, um, there's, an, there's another useful book 
and again, I'm not I'm not trying to be sort of pessimistic here, although it's it's really sounding like it is maybe. But there's another book that that, that I think uh, everyone should read, and that's Leland Leland Sato S A I T O. His a book called The Politics of Exclusion: The Failure of Race Neutral Policies in Urban America. Right now, you this is applicable to sort of almost any institution. There are no such thing as race neutral. We think they are. We think that we can sort of engage, but neutrality is really status quo. It affects right the people that are already in positions of power or that have resources right there's nothing there's nothing neutral about it it sort of maintains the status quo right um and but but we have we get fooled into thinking like even the radical folks among us thinking that okay how are we going to make change well let's make change through policies let's let's take race out of the equation well you can't take race out of the equation because it's built on racism right the race is like it's it's built on the inequities we have to solve the real problems in equity um and it also gets to another point where, where you know, I get sometimes confused. I get confused because I'm not, I don't, like, I'm not a fan of the word sort of anti-racism at this point, right? And I, just like I'm not a fan of diversity and inclusion. I think those have been co-opted terms um, and, and they've been sort of rendered meaningless, right? I mean, anti-racism has sort of like become a buzzword now that's been co-opted by a lot of groups that aren't. Uh, in what we would consider historically uh, excluded or marginal uh, or racially oppressed groups, right? <laughs> just, right. Um, but it also is a buzzword that that leads to um, ambiguity, much like diversity leads to ambiguity, right? Um, you know, let's let's be an anti-racist organization. Okay, what was that? What does that actually mean? And, it, and it's a real question, right? Because you, like, what does it what does it mean? Is is UConn, for example, an anti-racist organization? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't. I don't, I don't think it is, right? Not at this point. I hope it will become. But what does that mean for me? That means acknowledging and trying to create sort of changes that rectify specific inequities that have historically existed at UConn. Racism is a big problem. Let's talk about racism, right? Let's not talk about, you know, let's talk about dealing with structural racism at UConn. Let's talk about, um, you know, um, sexual harassment at UConn. Let's be very specific. Let's talk about ageism. Let's talk about uh, you know, ableism. Let's talk about these in its specificity rather than talk about this thing called, like, let's talk about diversity. I don't really know what that means, right? Um, you know, um, for me, it's the challenge of, like, if we're going to talk about, um, you know, anti-Asian hatred, then let's talk about anti-Asian ha hatred. If we're going to talk about anti-Black racism, let's talk about anti-Black racism, right? Those kind of things. Um, and I think I think that we're sort of caught up in a moment where it's we're just we're just throwing words out and and they've become sort of rendered meaningless. Yeah, I really really appreciate the the perspectives that you both brought into the conversation. And I think touching on one of the ideas that you mentioned, David, you kind of made me think of how how interesting that the the use of of languages in this instance because like there's like you mentioned like we have these these buzzwords these terms that are so ambiguous and yet we also are refusing to use other terminology that could really get more granular in terms of just the racist structures and layers that exist at, in in so many spaces specifically UConn and other higher education institutions and how performative they can be. And oftentimes, like, I think I'll use ODI as an example, like the establishment of an office like ODI and the the huge in inequities that exist within them, like not enough funding, perhaps not enough staffing 
And so it's like the cycle replicates it, itself. It's like, is it really effective? It's performative. It's like the fireworks, Stephanie, that you were talking about earlier. You know, it's like on an institutional level, it's almost like, okay, we did our job. But then the, the, the structure itself, the office itself can't thrive and actually tackle these specific like structural issues like you're talking about, David. And I'm, I'm just curious because the, the both of you bring such a rich and unique background. You know, David, you've mentioned a couple of times you have a sociology background, got your undergrad, master's and PhD at Texas A&M. Um, you're an author, you're a teacher, you're a speaker. And Stephanie, you, you have a really interesting background as well in biomedical and mechanical engineering, you know, having studied in Italy and Connecticut. That's really beautiful, bringing that international perspective. And I'm just curious, like for the both of you, I, I really, really love what, what you mentioned, David, about like just like the reality check that sometimes students need in that, like, like you said, they can be real gung ho, but what's the reality? What are they going to be faced with? Because again structures systems like there are ba barriers you know <laughs> um that that we kind of have to work around and and build a lot of these bridges to make changes happen and so i'm curious for the both of you were there barriers that that you personally encountered and and if so how how did they shape how you approach this work well i think it's 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 really interesting because coming from an engineering background there's a lot of experiments. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of focus on numbers, if you will. And numbers in particular have always thought to have been neutral, but we know that they're not. Um, and I think that's hard for a lot of people to swallow. Like, how can this number not be neutral? And whether it's from, you know, some of the, the graphs that we might see from the, the government putting Y axes that don't have equal scales to show that COVID numbers are increasing exponentially, but the graph is not, it's lying. And so how we use data to manipulate certain situations or how we share things shows power being, that, that's a manipulation of power. And so with that, a lot of people think that certain fields are more neutral than others. And that's not true. And so when you have to acknowledge the roots or the beginnings of, of certain fields, that's when you recognize how and where to go. So in, in a lot of fields as well, like how, how did engineering start or how did science start? Some people might point to um, different folks from, I don't know, Greece or people who are professing things like you might have someone who discovered gravity or all these things <laughs> that are happening and it's like okay so you have people who are allegedly creating knowledge and then they're teaching it to other people but what what is actually happening what are the principles that are coming in that is ignoring any other cultures and peoples and perspectives that are coming in and how are you defining that to be status quo and I love what David says about status quo because I think it is it is so strong and, and the deviation of it. So as as for example, STEM education has has evolved over time and you're you have these textbooks that exist and these um, equations and discoveries that you're like, here's what it is, period. And that's that. And this data has come from experiments that could be exploiting different communities or testing on people without their consent or using people's like, for example, Henrietta Lacks using her cells without her permission. And that is the structures and powers being used 
against <laughs> against oppressed people like black people were used for experiments and so when you you have to acknowledge all of the things that contribute to the field and what that that means and when that becomes education you can't just say here's this thing here's this equation and it just came here learn it um you have to know what happened and you have to know how to move forward so that it doesn't happen again you know people often sort of you know they 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 see what they see now and they're like oh you know you you have some successes but you know i think i mean i i'm sort of a product of mentorship honestly like i'm a product of luck luck of the draw and some academic folks of color who um decided that they would take a chance with me right and i and i went and i'm very specific about that right um because they weren't white scholars um that did any mentoring. I mean, there were some, but I'm talking about really up, uplifting to a point where it's like you 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 can do this, right? My, you know, I'm I I have a a working class background. My 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 uh, my father was in the military, enlisted. Um, I actually went into Texas A&M as an undergraduate in political science. I didn't do very well. I got kicked out actually. <laughs> um, I was working sixty hours a week, um, and uh, you know. Um, you know, they, they were hard days. Um, and um, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't, you know, there, there's, a, there's interesting, I guess we can just call it sort of the intersections of race and class, right? I mean, race, uh, class-wise, like I had no idea that you could just uh, email your professor and say, hey, I missed the final. Like, can I retake the final? Like, I, did, I didn't know any of these um, tips and tricks of how to sort of get away with whatever. Um, and I just took it, right? And I got I got kicked out. And I went to um, and 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 I had already like going into Texas A and M. I had a I had an associate's degree in in um, criminal justice. I went into political science, and I got kicked out. And I went. I remember going to the admissions office trying to get back in, and I was told flatly, like, you know, um, you you're not a serious student. In order for you to you have to prove that you're a serious student, we need you to go get uh, go to community college and raise your grades. But we need you to get an associate's degree. And I remember thinking, I already have an associate's degree. So you tell me I got to go back and get another associate's degree, right? Well, it turns out that you don't have to. So I went back to the the local junior college and I got a, another associate's in business. And there I met a bunch of students that had basically dropped out of Texas A&M because they were partying, drinking, and they were told that they just needed to go back for a semester, get their grades up, and they would get back in, right? So that was sort of the clue number one. And I also remember like taking a class in which the, um, you know, um, I spent a good chunk of my life in Germany. And so I was taking, <laughs> I was taking German because I thought it was going to be easy. And it, it, it turns out it's a lot of work. Um, but the, I took German again um, in the community college, and my same professor who was at AM was adjuncting at the junior college, and he was like, why didn't you just, like, email me? We could have just, you know, and I was like, I had no clue, right? Those kind of things. And so I found, you know, this, I, I, um, I, that's when I had this kind of epiphany, like, there, there's, some, there's something, you know, um, I, I want to I really tease out this thing. And I went into sociology, and that's where I sort of met my, one of my advisors, um, who I'm best friends with today. Uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva. And, and I mean, it was really him that basically was like, you know, um, your graduate student material. And I didn't know, I didn't even think I was just like, I'm going to get my bachelor's degree. Wow, that's like an achievement in itself. And I'm just going to go to the workforce. And he was like, that's silly. That's just ridiculous. Um, you know, um, and then the second thing that they're, they're, I mean, they're, you know, you talk to anybody, right? Uh, <laughs> almost anyone who's a person of color. And I'm saying this as someone who's racially ambiguous, and I don't get near 
the amount of racial microaggressions that my darker skin colleagues, colleagues who are who are black and Latinx get. Um, but um, I remember being excited. He really sort of put this bug in my ear that I could be a graduate student. I remember in the in the in the uh, graduate program in in Texas A&M, the sociology program, you have to go to an advisor who was this graduate student. This is a white female graduate student. I remember going into her office, and my advisor was like, "You need to go talk to her about what it's going to take." And I remember going into her office and um, she didn't even, I mean, she didn't, we didn't bother having a chat or anything. She sort of looked up and, and, and I was like, you know, I'm here to talk about graduate school. Um, and she basically is like, you're not graduate school material. And I remember taking that. I just left her office. I left her office. I went back to my advisor. I was like, you know, F this, like I am, the, you know, your, your world sucks. Like I'm not, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I realized a couple of things. I mean, one is like that was a treatment that he as a black Puerto Rican had been exposed to when he went to school in Wisconsin. And it was a transference of racial microaggressions, right? You bring back memories of things that are happening to you so that, you know, his blood pressure shot up. And so, you know, there was a couple of things that were happening here. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, when things calmed down, he sort of pushed me to keep going, right? And 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 my advisors have been like Rogelio Science has been great. Like I had I had all like um, chairs and faculty of color that have really been the ones because they have they have been in that spot to know like the things that a lot of white academics will poo-poo on or dismiss as like, oh, you're just taking things too seriously. But it's like no, when you're constantly marginalized, erased, made to feel small, you know, um, you know. Um, that has significant consequences and it takes really good mentorship right and so but but these are the things that have sort of shaped kind of my views and why i continue doing what i do i do think there is something to be said about sociology i but i look at it, the the change and the critical thinking through the lens of people like du bois right um you know or even non-sociologists whether they be ida b wells or whether it be france fanon um but you know um while i think there's something uh, that we can sort of think about deeply sociologically, I do think the sociology field is full of crap, right? So th those are contradictions, right? I think sociology thinks that they're better than everyone else because they study the human populations, institutions, and structure, you know. Um, but I think they're 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 the they're enemy number one at the same at the same time, right? They they do so like they engage in racial racialized racist practices while putting themselves on a pedestal. In a lot of cases, not not right. I'm not talking about individuals here, but I'm talking about as a discipline, right? Um, so, you know, I I I find myself these days, honestly, um, I'm still a sociologist. That's why that's how I was trained. Um, but thinking about issues of of racism and diversity and these things um, more interdisciplinary, uh, day by day. Let me just say, like, I really appreciate the vulnerability and the honesty that that you both shared in, in your answers. Um, and I, I can relate to to two two things. What one that one thing that you mentioned, Stephanie, and and another that you mentioned, David. And and even though I'm not, I, I don't consider myself to be like very mathy. I did I did my undergrad in economics, so I, I like numbers, just not on an engineering level. <laughs> and you, Stephanie, you you mentioned like the the manipulation of data, which is really the manipulation of power. And I it makes me wonder, or it makes me think about how. Every month, the Bureau of Labor Statistics pumps out, you know, a 30 page report on unemployment data and whatnot, and how there are actually six indicators of unemployment data, but they use the best one, which is <laughs> the lowest number. 
but not everybody looks at that PDF. Like not everybody. I'm so I'm I'm the nerd that's like, oh, it's Friday, <laughs> it's jobs report Friday. I'm I'm waiting for it and how it's I and I think studying economics made me realize that how who who has access to that information, who is is told to dig further because a lot of this information is out there. It's just people aren't looking or they're not being told to look, and. Like that is just, that was just mind blowing to me as an undergrad and David, like love what you said about you know, like that you're a product of mentorship. Cause I, I, I can totally relate to that. You know, I wasn't documented. I'm still here on a work permit. And I think if it weren't for mentors, one, I wouldn't have even considered college because I was, I was so ready to throw in the towel uh, just because like it not only financially was it a barrier, but like believing that I could and I'm not sure if like the both of you can relate you know and it's all it's interesting how sometimes mentors see something in us that we didn't even see at that time in ourselves and I think that's a really beautiful thing to have those people it's like I mean it goes back to the podcast like it takes a village and it takes a lot of heart to to you know produce just students and and change agents in this in this world and I'm I'm curious uh, as a segue into our next question, as as you both are mentors and teachers in the classroom and outside the classroom, for that matter, how how do students now on the flip side, like now you are the ones that are seeing this potential uh, in students, like how how do they how do they react? Do they you know, do, do you see some similarities and, you know, oh, I see a mini Stephanie or a mini David. And these students are, 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 and I, and I asked this question just because of context. Like, I also recognize that, uh, like for me, it's been a while since I graduated high school. It's been a while since I went to my undergrad. These are different students living in different times. And so I wonder if like the reaction that you get from students is perhaps tied to this new context. I'll share a, a story. And I, I remember, um, I wanted to do, a. A survey, and this is me as a grad student, and I wanted to do a survey um, on a program I was doing, and there I wanted to understand the experiences that the students were having in a particular setting. Um, so this is me dipping my feet as an engineer into some 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 human based studies. Um, <laughs> so I, I wanted to understand what was going on, and I remember wanting to particularly look at or focus on the experiences of. Um, of the black women in the classroom. And I was told I can't do that because there's not enough and they're not statistically significant. And that really hit hard for me because I'm like, so do my experiences not matter? Am I statistically insignificant? And that hit hard. And so one of the things I vowed is to never be statistically insignificant. And so that's um, kind of what I, I look for in the, in a sense in, in a lot of things that I do. So making sure to, to, to reach out to students and let them know you might be the only in my classroom, but I see you. Um, and so it, it's really important because I think going back to the data and the power and the numbers, like it's just so it's valued so much. Um, and when you don't have that, that statistical power or the, the massive numbers, then it can be very easy to fall through the cracks and I, I hate that. And so I really try in, in a space, like I'll introduce myself to a group of students and I'll say, hey, I'm the first woman in my family to get a college degree. I'm the daughter of immigrants and I share who I am. And I don't 
I don't sugarcoat it. Um, and I say, if that resonates with you, if that vibes with you, come talk to me. And I say that from the beginning, day one. And I think that openness of who I am and just being real, because I know so many people who, like, I went through the same thing you, David, like, I didn't know you could email. I was afraid of office hours. There's so many people who feel that too. And so you sometimes just need to say, hey, come through. I, like, if that vibes with you, if you have those experiences, I'm here for you. And I've had a lot of students emailing me and say, hey, I don't know if you know me, or I don't know if you remember me, but I really liked what you said. Can I come talk to you? Yes, please come talk to me. And I think that's really important um, that we just open ourselves in our spaces to people and not just treat education as a transaction or as a business, because we're humans here too. So let's connect. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I think it comes with a, a cost though. I think mm. it comes with a penalty, right? I mean, I, you know, I know, you know, we like to poke fun at Trump and, but it's really about normative whiteness, right? Mm. Because what you see is you see sort of, and, and again, not to, not to sort of, you know, um, really talk about oppression Olympics, but like, you know, the white students tend to get, um, you know, they they tend they tend to get a lot of mentorship. A lot of the academics are white, right? Um, you talk to a, a a lot of students of color, especially black students and Latinx students, and they and they will tell you um, the challenge is because there's not enough faculty or staff of color, and so they're and they're not getting the same kind of treatment that white students are getting, right? So. What happens is when they find folks that really, truly, they think believe in them, when they open up like Stephanie, when they're like, you know, okay, I think she gets me. Then you end up with a line of students outside your door. And I remember in my previous institution, you know, I remember, I remember watching, like an assistant professor, I remember watching my colleagues, assistant professors, close the door and publish and just publish and publish and sometimes not even come to to, to the to the office they just publish at home and every day i would have a line of students at my door and it would it, it was you know and and for me you know it was advice on you know well maybe one of the things you want to do is close your door and do what other people do you have every right to do that but i actually i don't feel that way because i didn't that if, if that would have happened to me from my mentors i wouldn't have made it through grad school and so i feel this kind of obligation to pay it forward but it, it comes with a cost and because there's so few students, so few faculty, you know, you may not just get students that are in engineering that are coming across your door. You may not just get sociology students. You may get students from across the university for whatever reason, right? A lot of them feel confident that they can talk to you in confidentiality, right? Um, and they can tell you things about their apartment being the only student color in their apartment, or they can tell you other things. So, so you, you know, as someone who is a faculty, uh, or staff of color at UConn, you're doing you're 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 talking about extreme numbers that your colleagues are probably not doing, so you're taking on the bulk of mentorship. Uh, you're trying to do what's right by the students, um, but you're also taking on a transference of racial microaggressions from them, much like my advisor did for me. Like when you sit, when I sit here and hear students talk about the the the, the egregious things that happen to them. Like, I feel like it's not, you know, and I may not have be able to do anything about it, but I, I get it, right? My blood pressure goes up, right? You know, my cortisol levels go up. Like I, I like, you know, and it's consistent because I, I bring back memories, right? Um, of things that have happened to me. And, and, and then, and then, you know, who knows, right? I mean, there's that. And then if I want to actually do something about it, because I feel emotional about it, there's an emotional labor that's attached to it. And then I want to do something, you know, all that takes time from the things that are expected of you uh, 
um, at the university level, right? And these are things that are never talked about, never talked about in terms of, you know, um, when 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 talking about the needs, the mentoring needs for faculty and staff at UConn at any level, right? Those kind of challenges, right? Because what your colleagues will tell you is like, you know, well, you know, you're just good with students, right? Without sort of recognizing, well, the students don't want to see you. They don't want to talk to you. They, there may be a reason they don't want to talk to you. You're part of the problem, right? You know, or you haven't developed that relationship or you don't think they're important enough, right? And Or, or you don't believe in sort of the shared labor, right? As a community, right? So the community ends up being one or two or three or a handful of people and, and we, and, and we're the ones that sort of carry the backbone of that, right? Um, it's also, but, but if you look at the numbers, right? I mean, we could see, right? I mean, you're talking about, um, you know, asking really serious questions about why faculty of color don't get promoted at the, at the same levels, at the same rates as their white colleagues. Well, there, that's one of many reasons, right? Now, as far as the students, I think the students sort of recognize this, but you know, um, you may not, you may not really appreciate how students appreciate you, but I could tell you there's a general appreciation that's there. Some students are able to sort of express that in different ways, that may be sort of more overt than others, but they're also struggling with like a million other things. They're struggling with all the things that it takes to be a student. If you add first generation, you're going to add all the first generation stuff, class issues, and then on top of that, being a student of color, right? The, the cumulative, the cumulative obstacles that are in one's path, um, you know, means that they're they're spending like all of their time um, trying to navigate life as much as navigate their their, their school systems, and so you know. Um, but I can assure you like that appreciation is is there, right? Because you're the person that they go to, right? Um, but again, you know, what does that do? What does that do? Yeah, and, and David, a lot of the things that you're describing is what I've been told is called the, the minority tax. And I, I think a lot about going back to politics. <laughs> I think a lot about my dad complains about oh, I have so much money taken out of my taxes. And I'm like, but do you know what your money's going towards? And so he's like, you just want to pay. <laughs> you just want all your money to go to taxes. I'm like, no, but I value where it goes. I value that my money goes to education. I work for a public institution, so I'm good with that. <laughs> so, but, but going back to like, is this the price that I want to pay? Do I want to pay the minority tax? That's a really interesting thing to think about. And I've been grappling with that for a while. I know as a grad student, when I was thinking about going into academia, and there were a lot of different options, and I ended up choosing the a non-tenure track route, partly because the system of tenure. And I know that um, what many would call service is not valued as much as I wanted or needed it to be. And recognizing that we, I am gonna be disproportionately mentoring students. I am gonna be doing a lot of programming and things because of that. I, I chose the route of, of assistant professor or assistant professor in residence partly because of that reason and being non-tenure track. And a lot of people might look down on me or they might think of a different hierarchical systems and like, why would you do that? You're crazy. but this is what I believe in. And I believe in 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 the students in the community and the culture. And until the system fixes that, then you don't get to claim me in your in your statistics of of tenured faculty, which I'm okay with because I know what I'm doing and, and what I believe in, but many might not have that opportunity to do so. And that's what I the privilege I I guess I have in that sense. Those are such beautiful answers and I I you know I always appreciate you, David and Stephanie, for keeping it real and and expressing the duality in this work, you know, that like on on the surface, like, you know, there, there's two sides 
um, to this work that we engage in, especially service work, that it's like it's it's beautiful and it's needed, but everything has an opportunity cost. And it, it's, you know, sometimes it's with our families. It's not enough time with our families. Perhaps it's not enough time publishing. Maybe it's it's just everything. Time is such a valuable resource. And so I really appreciate you both bringing it back to the reality. But I also really want to commend you both for the work that you do engage in, because I just think of of my mentors. And it's because of them that I was able that I'm here. And so similarly, you are both, I think, paving the way for many other students as well, being vulnerable, being honest, providing that time and being real with them as well. Sometimes like I think being proactive kind of involves having those nitty gritty conversations like, hey, what's going to happen after you graduate? What's the reality of the workplace? And, you know, in, in an effort to be innovative and just forward thinking i'm I'm just curious especially as, as uh we're, we're coming up on time here what what advice would you give members of the audience you, you can keep it specific to to you know folks in in the field of sociology and engineering or just broadly you know folks that maybe want to engage in this work for the first time maybe folks that want to try something new david you first <laughs> <laughs> i um I have found um, it's important for me to have a support community outside of my department, um, outside of the university. Um, I will say that um, I I I think I think um, I'm aware of the challenges of being a joint position. Um, and the burdens, but I, I am also happy that I'm in a joint position because uh, Africana Studies Institute has been sort of very, uh, it's been sort of a second home, right? Uh, my colleagues are awesome. But, you know, saying that it's still within UConn, and so I have that support um, outside. And I also, um, I've also sort of taken upon myself to do, like, I don't, I like, just, you know, I don't think that, um, what we do as academics uh and i'm talking about sort of the ivory tower stuff does anything like it doesn't you know it's it's it for me it's sort of careerist um move and so i've started to do things that i think um are more gratifying for myself in terms of and it may not lead to sort of it may not be sort of instrumentally like real change like immediate change but i think um you know uh you know things that um get to a larger audience than say the the academic elites, right? So that includes doing more writing op eds, um, you know, doing more things for the community, working more with the community. The position I'm in now as director of the Sustainable Global Cities Initiative is something that it's a lot of work, um, but I think I'm digging it um, because it gets me out into the community of Hartford. It gets me into the community. It gets it gets to I get to sort of pitch. Um, people's academic work in a way that puts theory to to praxis and i think that's in, that's important um and so so you know i i think that um it depends on what you want to do right i mean i think i think you need to know thyself um you know um but i think you need to sort of understand the realities of what it means if you're going to be an academic within a historically white college or university um that um things are not going to be as radical as you think they are like whatever you decide to do like it's not going to happen right i mean in, even even in terms of like 
you know, we have to sort of understand that it's institutionalized, but it's more than it's just institutionalized. People come and go. Like you can have a student pro at my previous university, like we had a racial incident happen on campus. There was a 300 student march that the TV crews were out. They they got the president to to talk to them. They you know to institutionalize. Part of part of what happened was that the uh, black students got profiled by police on campus. You know, um, you know, they asked to check for their ID when they produced their IDs. They were told that those were fake IDs and they proceeded to, to, to you know, uh, take them off campus. Right. And they brought in the right. And so, you know, there's an uproar. Right. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, the students were demanding for institutional change. And, and let's be honest, the institution knew that all they needed to do was wait four years to get the students out. The students come in and out. Right. It happens on our campus. Right. In UConn, like, you know, we know the students graduate. Right. And so, and so I think, I think you have to sort of be, you have to sort of realize that this is also why when you talk to faculty of color on UConn, you're going to get faculty that are basically will tell you horror stories for the 30 years that they've been here. And you're like 30 years, really? Like that's progress, right? But, but I think it's easy to, easy, it's easy to see for me, right? Um, because of the way that the, these institutions are structured. And so knowing that I have to find other ways um to do the work that i want to do and I, I think as long as you sort of do that and you're okay with that and you're willing to sort of take risks um, um then that's where you're going to probably find the most gratification that's just my personal take i know i don't know you know could other people could, might feel differently but so much goodness david <laughs> like you just so much good yes Huh, how do I how do I follow that? You just give great advice. Oh, well, you do the same thing. You're you you made this whole thing about like this is why you choose to be APIR. I mean that's that's a hard like that's a decision that you have to sort of make right with the realization that like we're in an elitist institution where people are just fools right. They engage in tomfoolery constantly right, um, and 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 you know but but but. It also puts you in a position where you sort of realize like this allows me to work with students. This allows me to do what I want to do. And that's what's going to make me happy. And so you can you can be a naysayer all you want. Um, and you, you but you'll be the one that's miserable. Right. Because I'm doing exactly what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Right. And if, and if I don't, then, you know, I mean, there's <laughs> there's the other side of the world, which is some people would say it's like, you know, then, then find another job. That's not I don't know. For me, it's kind of like in, in this economy like, and in academia, that's kind of, you know, that's that's hard. That's easier for some than others, right? Um, but I, I think there's still there's still this kind of um, doing that allows a certain kind of freedom, right? To do to do what you want to do. I guess for for advice, I remember thinking to myself, I want to go into academia to flip tables. That's what I told myself, and um, think going back to the house analogy and thinking about. You know, repairing the house and fixing the house. I was like, we're gonna do a complete gut. It's gonna be like, you know, those HGTV shows where everything is happening in the first <laughs> 48 hours of the gut. And I'm realizing that it's a slower process than that, despite how much we want change fast. And so I think recognizing that we can't just take a sledgehammer to the walls and tear it down, but we're just gonna have to take our hand tools and tear it down brick by brick and then find something else to replace it with. Um, and so in that process, I've been learning a lot of patience and I've been learning different ways of war. So there's the strategizing, there's the rather than immediate attack, if you will. So there's there's ways of planning and being strategic and being thoughtful and intentional to get where you need to be. And it doesn't have to happen overnight, even though I wish it would. 
Um, so that's one of the things I've learned. So my advice would be patience, but that doesn't mean stop moving. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Let's keep moving. I, I think that's though. important, right? Because, you know, you're talking about if, if you're not talking about, you know, um, the ability or anything, you're talking about the realities of, of, of completely, uh, you know, um, um, you know, taking apart, mantling higher education or the university, you're, you're talking about doing something that's meaningful. You take it apart by brick by brick in realization that there's other people that are going to contrast that, that are, that are planting flower beds to, to, to cover up the smell, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, the world needs people like that, right? That, 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 that's going to, even, even if it's sort of slow increments, that's going to say, you know, you can plant all the flower beds you want, but I'm, you know, underneath this dirt is still going to be like the, the, the dog poo, right? The rotten poo that you covered up. Um, and, and, and we need, we need to, we need to constantly be vigilant about that. Right. We need to, we need to tackle that. Right. Yeah. And even if we're going with this analogy, you know, you, you start taking things apart and you realize there's a crumbling foundation. Hold on. We got to fix it. Oh, my gosh. As we're digging, we broke the pipe. So there's things, there's missteps that are going to happen. But how do we fix them? Or there's things that we're going to unearth behind yeah. the walls that you didn't see on the surface. So it's like, wait, we got to address this. So all of that comes into play in right. this work. The termites. Termites. <laughs> Those darn termites. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's uh, th that's such a beautiful way, I think, to, to end. And, and Stephanie, what, what you shared kind of reminds me of what you mentioned earlier about acknowledging the injustices in the field and your analogy of like removing the brick, you know, kind of like disassembling the house brick by brick. I think that's almost in a way like kind of seeing the history, the injustices, you know, you're able to peel back the layers and be like, why was this house not the way that it's supposed to be and how can we reconstruct something even better and it yeah. takes being strategic it takes being patient it takes being intentional um and and david i'm, I'm gonna end with uh kind of three three points that you made know thyself <laughs> know the system and take risks those are kind of my three little takeaways from me so re really really appreciate the wisdom that both of you shared as always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.